We're in this series called Rethink. Last week we started rethinking the Bible. Why do we believe the Bible is true? Why do we believe the Bible to be the true, inerrant, infallible Word of God? And so I'm going to be doing that again today, and we'll get into it again next week on this. This is such a crucial topic, such a crucial matter in the life of believers. You will never learn any more about who he is unless you receive what the Bible says about him. So it's really important. I said last week, pastor and theologian Dr. J. Sidlow Baxter, who grew up in Lancashire, England, and he studied uh, in London under Spurgeon's Theological College. He died in 1999, but he wrote a book, and in that book he, or he wrote like 30 books, but in one of those books he said that he doesn't believe that the biggest division between Christians is one denomination uh, pushed up against another. That it's not between our denominational differences, but that our denominational difference has to do more with what we believe about the Bible. That some believe the Bible to be the Word of God, while other denominations do not hold that it is really the Word of God. Let me illustrate just how easy this comes across sometimes. A little girl was attending a church that is what we would consider to be a more liberal church, liberal in their theology and their approach to Scripture. And so she comes to Sunday school, and she's been reading her Bible that week, and she tells the Sunday school teacher about this big whale that swallowed Jonah, how big it was and and what happened when Jonah disobeyed God. And the Sunday school teacher heard her out, and she said, Well, you know, darling that the story of Jonah and the whale didn't really happen. She said, uh, this is uh, something that can't happen. It's just a story that's meant to teach us something about serving God and the importance of serving God. That's all it is. The whale thing never happened. Well, the little girl, she believed what her Bible said, and that whale did swallow Jonah, and that, so she said, I'm just going to stick with what the Bible says on that. Well, the teacher's a little frustrated now. This is her Sunday school teacher now. She said, well, although whales are very large mammals, the truth is they have such a small throat that a whale cannot uh, swallow a human being. That story's not there for that. It really can't happen. That little girl stood her ground and she said, well, I believe it happened. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah all about it. We're going to get to talk all about it. The teacher paused for a minute and she said, well, what if Jonah's not in heaven? The little girl said, then you can ask him. You can ask him. The Bible is the inspired word of God. That was last week. The Bible is the inspired word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3.16. If you didn't write that down, you ought to have it. The Bible says all scripture is inspired by God. Now the better translation of that is actually found in the NIV and the ESV. All scripture is God breathed. That is a more literal translation. It's God breathed. Some translations use the word inspired from a Latin origin. The Greek word, however, in the Bible manuscripts is theonoustos. Theonoustos. It's a compound word. Theo means God. That's where we get our word theology, the study of God. Theo means God. Noustos means wind, breath, or spirit. Noustos is the word for Holy Spirit or pneuma, the Holy Spirit. 
And so it's best translated, theonoustos, as God breathed. That teaches us about the divine origin of Scripture. It comes from God. So think about that compound word, theonoustos. From noustos, we get our English word pneumonia. Pneumonia is an ailment of the lungs. It, it, has, it gives us problems breathing. It has to do with our breath, the wind that comes up out of our lungs. So we get that word pneumonia from that word pneuma or noustos. Pneuma also means spirit. So the language used in 2 Timothy 3.16 teaches us that Scripture originated from the very breath and person of God, the Spirit of Almighty God. Now there's a problem in theology that if you start pulling out one verse of Scripture and basing a doctrine on it, it leaves that doctrine rather weak. And so you don't do that. What you do is you use Scripture to support Scripture. That is, if the Bible says it somewhere, it's probably going to be supported somewhere else. And so that's what we like to do in theology. We search to see if the words used in this passage, where it says God is, uh, the, the Scripture is God breathed, inspired by God, we use words there and we go and find other places perhaps where that word or similar words are used, even if they're used in a different context. Uh, they perhaps have the same meaning. So we're going to do that because Scripture supports Scripture. Well, this same language is used in second, that's used in 2 Timothy 3.16, teaching us about the Spirit of God, is also found in Acts chapter 2, in verse 1, 2, 3, and 4, and numerous other places in relation to the Holy Spirit throughout the New Testament especially. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, you'll realize that Jesus has ascended into heaven after His resurrection, and He instructed them to wait... In Jerusalem, stay at the celebration, wait till that Pentecost was coming, and to wait together, and they were waiting in the upper room. And the Bible says, as they waited, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. Verse 4 explains what that wind was, and says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's the words again, wind, breath, and spirit are the same meanings of the same word. Wind, breath, and spirit. It's the pneuma. They were filled with the pneuma. The pneuma. And so all scripture came from the breath and spirit of God. It is God-breathed, having God as its origin. Now this is just a recap from last week's sermon, but it's so important because I think it lays the foundation for the other things that I begin to mention today, and then some of the historical facts for next week. But let me go on to point number two. We'll change direction just a little bit with that. Not only is it God-breathed, not only does Scripture have its origin in God, the supernatural unity of Scripture is amazing. So let's talk about the supernatural unity of Scripture. Here's a good question. And this is a question many people ask. If this Bible originated from God himself, what about the fact that we have 66 books in it, in all Old Testament, New Testament put together, 66 books, and we know that man wrote some of those books because they even say that they wrote them. We know we have 40 authors. So if 40 men wrote 66 books 
of the Bible, how is it that we say it originated from God? How do we say that God wrote the Bible? Well, I think that's a very valid question. In fact, skeptics and liberal theologians and atheists hold that the human involvement in the writing of Scripture prevents it from being the Word of God. That it's just a history book, per se. A lot of history of the nation of Israel, a lot of their dealings in world conflict and the Middle East and all of that. It's history, it's a book of fabricated stories, some of it, and it's just a book of other cute stories. It's, it's just a lot of things and mostly good, but it's not from God. Well, in that case, what I would like to do is give them a little bit of additional support for their stand that this isn't the Word of God, okay? So let me just be a little facetious and do that and add some support to their argument. The Bible is a compilation of 66 books. The Bible is written by 40 different authors. During different time periods, in fact, covering 1,500 years, just imagine... Some of you have been here 25 years. We're talking writings compiled together by 40 different people over 1,500 years. Some of you have been here 50 years. Some of you 80. What a drop in the bucket compared to 1,500 years of writing and bringing those books together to form one canon of Scripture. Worse, these 40 different writers over 1,500 year time span, wrote in three different languages as well, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Worse than that, they lived on three different continents. They didn't all live in the same place. The evidence still gets worse. Those 40 writers living on three different continents, writing three different languages over a span of 1,500 years, also came from different backgrounds. They grew up in different cultures. They had different walks of life. Some were shepherds, some were kings, some were scholars, some were fishermen, some were prophets. One was a military general, one was a king's cupbearer, servant to the king, one was a priest. Look at all the different backgrounds they come from. They had different purposes for writing as well. One was recording history, another recorded history, and another. Some gave spiritual instruction, some more like moral instruction, moral laws, pronouncing judgment, some teaching the nature and character of God. They didn't even have the same purpose together in writing their books. In them we see their own personal expressions of emotion, sorrow, anger, frustration, joy, love, helplessness, hopelessness, loneliness, and victory. We see all their personal emotions. How could that be God's Word when we see all this personal aspect of their own lives in these stories, these chapters, these books of Scripture? They compose their works from palaces, prisons, the wilderness, places of exile, while writing history, laws, poetry, prophecy, and proverbs. Despite this vast, wide spectrum of people, topics, and purposes, however, the Bible displays a flawless, internal consistency and unity that is humanly impossible. That's why I'm labeling this point the supernatural unity of Scripture. Have you ever thought about that? 
how we can have such a vast wide spectrum of men, topics, purposes, places they've come from, ways of life, walks of life, yet it flows together with great integrity in such unity and purpose. CNN and Fox alone prove that such consistency and unity is humanly impossible, witnessing the same event but having opposite perspectives. Yet with Scripture, 40 writers over three continents, 1,500 years apart, maintained a common theme, common purpose, resulting in a common end made possible by faith in the same one Lord, His Son Jesus Christ, without contradicting itself. Humanly impossible. Except with God, all things are possible. How is it possible? Well, here's where you come in. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, where Peter explains how prophecy came about. So maybe you're saying, okay, if God wrote it, how was it possible to get it like this? Well, here's how. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Some translations say as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The same word there in the Greek. So there's your answer. They were carried along by the Spirit of God. Acts chapter 27 verse 15. Jot that down in your margin. Luke writes about an occasion in Acts 27 15 when they were in a ship and they were caught in a storm. Now what am I about to do? I'm about to say Scripture supports Scripture. Scripture supports Scripture. So I'm going to another passage of Scripture where some of the same words, same phrases, same context perhaps, maybe different context, but same meanings are found in a different passage of Scripture because Scripture supports Scripture. And so that's what we look for. He says when they were in this ship in Acts 27, 15, the ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way and were driven along. So in other words, Luke says we were in this ship and we got in a storm and we gave up. We couldn't head into the wind anymore. We couldn't sail that way. I mean, we just had to give it up and let it be driven along. There was nothing we could do. We were at the mercy of the wind. It's caught in the storm. They could not head into the wind. We gave way. We were driven along, he says. That's that same word used where it says the Holy Spirit carried them along as they wrote Scripture. It didn't come by their own interpretation. It didn't come by the will of man, 2 Peter 1.21. They were driven along. They were carried along. They were moved along by the Holy Spirit. The wind itself was the driving force in that ship. The same word. They're carried along by the wind. In the same way, the Bible did not come by human means. Men wrote as they were carried along and driven by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, to read the Bible is to read the words of God. To obey the Bible and what it says is to obey God Himself from His very words. To pay attention to what the Bible says is to pay attention to God. To study the Bible is to study the words of God. To study the words that the Bible says about God is to study about Him. That's doing theology. Theo, God, ology, the study of God. Theology. 
to speak the truths that are found in the Bible. It's to speak the truths of God. To memorize the things that are in the Bible is to memorize the very Word of God from His Spirit, from His breath, as He moved in the hearts of men and carried them along in the Spirit to write about the things He wanted them to write about. To trust the Bible is to trust God. To live according to the Bible is to live for God. The Bible has God as its author, truth as its substance, redemption as its theme, salvation as its end, and Jesus Christ as its main character from beginning to the end. Its supernatural unity flows toward a single end. What is that single end? Well, we learned that back in 2 Peter chapter 3 last week. To make us wise unto salvation. Wise unto salvation and to equip us for every good work. God moved and carried along and drove the hearts of men to write. By His very presence... The Word of God. Why? Why? To make us wise unto salvation. To redeem us. So that we might have the story of how we can belong to God. And be a companion of Almighty God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God made us and created us for fellowship with Himself. But God is holy. And man must be holy to be in the presence of God. There's no fellowship unless two walk together, unless two are of one accord. We can only be in one accord with Him through faith in His Son so that our sins are cleansed and forgiven and we are at one with Him. He is God. He is holy. We are not. But Jesus becomes our righteousness when we put our faith and trust in Him. Amen? So it's to make us wise unto salvation. Then it's to equip us for every good work. That is the amazing unity of God's Word. Supernatural unity. But now go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, not 2 Peter, but 1 Peter chapter 1. And find verse 24. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24 and 25, where he quotes the prophet Isaiah. And I think you'll find many similar passages of Scripture throughout the Old Testament and New Testament like these words. For all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. I want to talk to you a minute or two about the providential indestructibility of God's Word. The providential indestructibility of Scripture. For many years, Scripture was outlawed. The canon of Scripture was outlawed. They didn't want you to have a copy of it. In fact, the Roman government outlawed it. Emperor Trajan reigned from 98 A.D. until 117 A.D. while John the Apostle was still alive. He was the last one alive. From Trajan up until about 316 A.D. when Constantine became emperor, most every Roman emperor up until that time either radically opposed Christianity and the Christians and Scripture or they did nothing to help it. 
They did nothing to support the cause of Christianity. They weren't going to back them. They weren't going to provide open doors for them or anything. But it may not have been radically opposed to them, but they certainly weren't going to help Christianity and stand up for them. Up until the time of Constantine. Diocletian ruled just before Constantine from 284 A.D. to 316 A.D. Eusebius, the great Greek and Christian historian in those days, wrote this, and I quote, Royal edicts were published everywhere commanding that the churches be leveled to the ground and scriptures destroyed by fire. Diocletian said that anyone having a copy of scripture had to surrender it to be burned, and if they didn't and were caught with a copy, they would be killed. They could also be killed for failing to report someone whom they knew had a copy of Scripture. Two years after his edict went into effect, Diocletian boasted, I quote, I have completely exterminated the Christian writings from the face of the earth. That's a time for a good laugh right there. The Scriptures are gone. I did it, he said. After Diocletian came Constantine, history tells us Constantine became a Christian. When he came into rule after Diocletian got rid of all the copies of Scripture, how could the Christian faith go on? How would people have the Word of God in written form to know uh, the things that they were to know about God? Well, Constantine said, I'll tell you what, I'll offer a substantial reward for anybody who can get me a copy of this because he believed it should be available in every church that still existed. Every church needed a copy of God's Word. And so he said, I'll give a substantial reward. Anybody can come up with a copy. And the, the story is that within 25 hours, 50 copies of the Bible were brought to Constantine. The Word of God is totally indestructible because of the providential hand of Almighty God upon it. It will never cease to be in existence. During the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church burned thousands of copies of the Bible, stating that priests were the only ones who could read the Word of God, and it had to be in Latin. And it was not for the common man to know or to try to read or to try to interpret. But the Word of God is indestructible. They could not destroy it neither. Voltaire, the noted French philosopher of the 1700s, tried to destroy the Bible as well. He said that within a hundred years, the Bible and Christianity would be completely non-existent. At some point, Voltaire was run out of France by John Calvin, the great reformer, for moral reasons. He came against Voltaire. Voltaire got tired of it. He got run out of town. He goes to Geneva, Switzerland. And years later, his Switzerland home in Geneva was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society. And there, his personal printing press and his personal home, after he was gone, was used to print and distribute Bibles from. Isn't that amazing? I'd chalk that up as a win for the Lord. Isaiah said, The grass withers and the flower fails and falls and fades, but the word of the Lord remains Forever. You cannot wipe out what God has said. Proverbs chapter 19 verse 21 in the NIV says, Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. Never forget that. I mean, you can take that on a personal level. 
Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the plans of the Lord that remain forever. That tells me something. I need to get my plans in line with God's plans because His plans are going to succeed. Mine have no guarantee whatsoever except they be His plans. So let me ask you, what plans have you made? Did you consult the Lord about those plans? Did you consult His mighty Word? His Word will never fail. His Word will always remain true. Are your plans God's plans for your life? You know, we struggle with this. Many a book have been written about how to know God's will for your life. I had a man tell me years ago, he said, Crispin, you know what? The best way to think, the, the way to do that is instead of asking God what his will is for his life, find out what God's will is and you get in on it. God's already got a will. I want my personal, I want to know my personal, what his personal will is for me. God's got a will for us all. And he says, here it is. It's in my word. Here's Jesus. Now go therefore unto every nation, uh, preaching the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. That's my will for your life. Now are you going to get in it or not? And we all want this personal thing with God where He makes my, His will for me different than you. And I know on some level, God does instruct us in certain ways. And He does move us by His Holy Spirit to do certain things specifically for our life. But God has a will. God has a purpose. His purpose has not changed from Genesis to the end. It's the purpose of redemption. It's the purpose of a loving God sending a son to die on the cross in his shed blood, offering forgiveness for our sin and atonement, paying the price for our sin so that we can be with him and go to heaven, having our sins forgiven. That's God's purpose. We need to be in on it. Amen. Matthew 24, 35. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. The word of God is indestructible. Wouldn't it be great to have a plan for your life that is totally and absolutely indestructible? It'd be great. And you can. You can have that kind of plan for your life. The book in the center of the Bible is the book of Psalms. The book in the Bible, left of center, is the shortest chapter in the Bible, and it's Psalm 117. The book on the other side, Psalm 119, is the longest chapter in the Bible. The book in the very middle is Psalm 118. And the verse in the center of the center chapter of the Bible is Psalm 118, verse 8. And this is what it says. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Who's man? Don't put your confidence in this preacher. One day he'll fail you. At some point, on some level, he'll fail you. The way this word is used, you know, sometimes we come to faith in Christ and we begin to idolize another Christian that's helped us so much. And, and so, uh, ladies, there's that temptation to say, I, I put my confidence in her, in her, but she let me down. She let me, she slipped and fell. She stumbled. Well, don't put your confidence in man. That's man or woman. Or anything we can accomplish or do. Don't put your confidence in that. But here's another part of that. Don't put your confidence in yourself. Don't put confidence in your own ability. You see, you're part of man too. Don't put your confidence in yourself. Well, I've got this all down. The Bible says take heed lest you fall. 
I've got this all down. Nothing's going to happen to me. No, no. That's confidence in you. Put your confidence in the Lord. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. You can have a plan for your life that's totally and absolutely indestructible by putting your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the central person of the Bible. And trusting in the Lord means trusting Jesus by faith. So let me ask you this. Will you believe this is the Word of God? Will you believe it's infallible? It won't steer you wrong. It's an errant, it's in its original content, the original manuscripts. If you say, well, I just can't believe it all right now. Can you believe in the central figure of the Bible? His name's Jesus. How can you believe in Jesus unless you believe all that's written about him? There's no other book that is so powerful. This book is living and active and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's able to divide even between the bone and the marrow. The scripture says he gets right down to the point where we need it most. We read the Bible, but the Bible reads us. Amen? Will you believe in Jesus? That's what I'm asking you to do today. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I give this invitation time to you. I pray for those who need to receive you as Lord and Savior, Lord, that they would make the right decision today and put their faith and trust in you.